When we think of priests, when we think of priests in the Bible, we think of the Levitical priesthood. It's probably the first thing that comes to your mind, which is an institution that uh, God put in place in Israel as part of the Old Covenant. We know, of course, that that priesthood has been replaced, and that's very clear in the New Testament scriptures, that it has been replaced by the priesthood of the resurrected Jesus Christ, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's take a look at that. Hebrews 6, if you would. Hebrews 6, verse 20. Breaking into a section, uh, focusing, trying to focus the, the, uh, the church on the hope ahead, but also delving into some of the details of that. Hebrews 6, verse 20 says where, talking about, actually he's talking about the, the high priest going behind the veil and and then comparing it to, to Jesus, and this is all stuff that would actually be covered, well, probably will be covered more at the Day of Atonement. But it says, where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf into the Holy of Holies, he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Well, Jesus has become a high priest in this new order, a new order of priesthood, Okay. The scripture also says something very, very interesting in Hebrews 6, verse 20. It speaks of Jesus as our forerunner, the one who goes before. Um, I looked up the word. It's kind of uh, oft, sometimes used, you know, someone who goes ahead to scout out the territory before people come, to, you know, check out the campsite before everybody shows up with their tents and things like that, okay? A forerunner. In Hebrews speaks of Jesus in this way multiple places. In this instance, though, he is going on to somewhere where we are intended to follow him. We, too, we, too, are to become priests after the order of Melchizedek, I put it to you. You are training now to act as a priest and a king alongside Christ, when he establishes the rule of God on earth at the time of his return. We've gone through the, many of the scriptures that relate to this. Um, a good one to reference in your mind would be Revelation 20, verse 4. I think I've hit it three of the last times I've been here, so I'm going to just leave it out there. So we've covered this, uh, Revelation 5, verse 10 as well, kings and priests. But you are in training. What do we know about the order of Melchizedek. What do we know about this new order of priesthood? I've got uh, five things, just short points here, about the order of Melchizedek that we do know. Let's read first Hebrews 7, verses 1 through 3, which is pretty much carrying on from where we left off. This Melchizedek, and he's referring here to Melchizedek of long ago, this is before the Levitical priesthood, this is way back in the days of Abraham, okay? And this Melchizedek was a king of Salem and a priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. What do we know about the order of Melchizedek? One thing we know, point one, I guess, it combines the office of king and priest in a single entity. The office of king and priest are combined in this order, which I think is very interesting to put together with what we know from Revelation about kings and priests and that. The order of Melchizedek puts them together, combines them in this one office. So a priest who is after the order of Melchizedek is also a king. Now a king implies something a little different from a priest. A king 
the office of a king implies judgment and leadership in non-religious areas, you know, um, things related to the infrastructure or, or the, the economy or things like that, okay? For today, though, we're going to focus on the priest portion, okay? The priest portion. But know that there's a significant amount of overlap between the two, okay? And many of the things that are said about the priesthood would also be applicable to the king. But they are slightly different, as you, as you well know. The second thing, the second point, what do we know about the order of Melchizedek? Well, such a priest king possesses character that is righteous and peaceful. Righteous and peaceful. The third thing, and we'll expand more on that later. The third thing, a, such a priest king possesses eternal life. We just read that there in Hebrews. Fourth, let's go to Hebrews 7, verse 15. And what we have said is even more clear, talking here about this Melchizedek priesthood. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, and he's speaking here of Jesus Christ, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. So he's comparing the priesthood of Christ to the old Levitical priesthood, okay? For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, and the former regulation is set aside for that. So this priest of the new order is appointed such because he is a son of God. Go to Hebrews 5, verses 5 through 10. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. And he says again in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him, and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Last point, number five, Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now, the main point of what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So such a priest sits down at the right hand of the throne. When you are resurrected, and you can hearken back to the last message I gave when I was here, you too will have all these attributes, with the exception of one, which is you will never be able to say without beginning of days. Other than that, you have all these attributes, okay? Uh, Spirit-born child of God, with eternal life, a mind of godly character that is both righteous and peaceful. Revelation 3, verse 21 it says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me. And this is, this is Christ speaking, speaking to the church. I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Just as Christ has taken his seat beside the throne of God, you will be given to sit at the right hand of Christ and his throne as a priest and king reigning together with him. And as a priest, king, you know, sitting at the right hand of Christ, I think this, this shows us that in the same way that uh, Christ the Son is subordinate to the Father and subject to the authority of the Father, that you as a king, priest, are um, submitting to, or submitted to the authority of, of Christ. What do we know about the activities of a priest? What do priests do? What do priests do? I think there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, a lot of people have a lot of romantic ideas about what priests did and didn't do. Um, we're going to try and get what we've got from Scripture. And I mean by that, not people in the church per se, but 
the wide world of, of craziness that's out there and you know all kinds of priests with funny hats and things like that. What do we know about the real activities of priests, the priests of God? Well, quickly, um, priests manage the offerings, manage the offering of gifts and sacrifice. Another thing, priests maintain personal holiness and cleanness. Priests protect and maintain the household of God. Priests make judgments on religious matters, such as clean versus unclean. And if you are reading Leviticus, uh, you'll see that I think it's chapters 10 through 16 all deal with cleanness and uncleanness and things like that. What is acceptable and what is unacceptable. Another thing priests do, priests proclaim the sacred assemblies. Ties right in with the message that we started off with today. Proclamation of the sacred assemblies of God. And in so doing, announcing and proclaiming the plan of God. One last one that I've got, and this is not, not to say there's nothing beyond this, but these are the ones that I think are key. Priests teach. Priests teach. Interpreting God's expressed will and word. What I'm going to do is try and go through these activities, but not each one. I'm going to bundle them together a little bit and uh, try and <clears throat> summarize somewhat, focus on the highlights. Let's take a look at teaching. Okay? Let's, let's start off with teaching. In Israel, the priest taught the people from God's word. The priest also taught the people from all the activities that they did you know, with regard to sacrifice, with regard to the tabernacle and things like that. These were all um, teaching methods as well. But the priest teaches from the word and the will of God, ensuring that people know what is required of them, what the word means, how do we apply it in our life. A couple of scriptures on that, Deuteronomy 33. This is a section Moses is... Um, putting a blessing on all the different tribes. And he says about Levi, these, the, the Levi would be the tribe of the priests. He says about Levi, Your Thummim and Urim belong to your faithful servant. You tested him at Massa, referring back to that time when Levi stood out from the rest in a way that was very notable to God. He said of his father and mother, I have no regard for them. He did not recognize his brothers or acknowledge his own children, but he watched over your word and guarded your covenant. He teaches your precepts to Jacob and your law to Israel. He offers incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. Malachi 2. So that's the beginning of the uh, Old Testament writings. Malachi 2 would be the end. 2 verse 7. This one is uh, more in the form of a reprimand because they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. And through his prophet, God <clears throat> reprimands them. And he says in Malachi 2 verse 7, For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. You could also look at Nehemiah. That'd be a good... Um, That'd be a good place to look at priests in a teaching role. Okay, presently, Christ, our high priest, resurrected, alive, active. Well, he acted as a teacher during the days of his, his physical life. And uh, he continues to teach. And he continues to fulfill his priestly function as a teacher through the ongoing work that you see in the Church of God, which is, uh, he is the head of, the body of Christ, of which he is the head, continues on in that work of teaching. Also, through the power of the Holy Spirit, his very presence within you. He continues convicting, helping you understand the word. So the ongoing priesthood, function of teaching is alive and well and living in Greensboro. Okay, future 
kings and priests, will also teach people the ways of God during the thousand-year rule of Christ. Because that's what priests do. That's what priests do. Question. Now, if you were going to teach a class, let's say the local community college, you're going to teach a class in pottery or auto mechanics. What would you need to do first? Well, the answer is that to be an effective teacher, you would have to learn the material first. Right? Now, I mean, I think we've all had an experience where we've been in a classroom, probably a long time ago for some of us, where a substitute teacher shows up who doesn't know the material, right? And they are not an effective teacher. It's just, a, it's basically a babysitting session. Okay, to be an effective teacher, you need to know the material yourself, right? Uh, future priest kings are training today, as I said before, training their mind with the knowledge of God and his ways through, through study, through study of God's word, but especially through application, through application. You could read a book about pottery. You know, you could read all about how pottery is made, or you could read a book about um, fuel injection engines and stuff like that. But that would not make you a good teacher, right? That doesn't lead to effective teaching. To teach a class in pottery, you have got to throw the clay on the wheel. You have got to pop open the head of that Pontiac and look inside to be an effective teacher. So knowing and doing what God's word says is training for your future role as a priest. What about a judge making, uh, or sorry, a priest making judgments on religious matters? That's another thing that priests do. The Levitical priests applied judgment to matters of what is clean, what is unclean. And I, I, you know, I pointed you to Leviticus 10 through 16. What is acceptable, what is not acceptable. And this touched on all kinds of areas of life. It touched on food. It touched on sex. It touched on uh, house cleaning. And it especially touched on methods of worship. Let's just just naming a few. There's more. Some things are acceptable to God, and some things are not. A priest needs to know and be able to make the distinctions. Now, in this church age, in this age, the church age, the resurrected Christ, our high priest, helps us distinguish what is clean and acceptable from what is not. We have written record of his teachings, okay? but we also have the convicting presence within us through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is Christ in you. When he taught, he taught that the actual eating of something unclean was not what truly defiled a person. One time he said, well, you... You strain out gnats, but you swallow a camel. They used to keep their um, water and wine and stuff like that in these big pots with an open lid, and they had to put stuff on top of them, and they were very concerned about gnats getting into them, little buggies that fly around. If you ever left wine open, you know, you know that's what they do. And they would pour it through a strainer before drinking it because they didn't want to guzzle down a nasty, unclean gnat. Well, they were very scrupulous in these matters, but in the meantime, you know, they were doing the equivalent of swallowing a camel. What does that mean? Well, he said, if something unclean goes into your mouth, well, what happens to it? It goes through, you know, your stomach and your intestines, and then, whoosh, right, into the toilet. That's what he said. Um, what really defiles a person, what really makes them unclean, is unclean deeds, talk, attitudes of the heart. Now, yes, we continue to make the distinction between clean 
and unclean food. But we do it as a physical discipline that points us toward a spiritual goal. A physical discipline pointing us toward a spiritual goal, which is to clean up our words and deeds and attitudes. Now, don't take this the wrong way, but if we were as scrupulous um, on matters of the mind, the spoken word, and the deed, as we are towards a bacon bit or a mystery meatball that you might find at a, at a uh, potluck, if we were as scrupulous about the spiritual realities that lay behind this, I think, I think we'd have really accomplished something. But it's hard to do, right? We, we don't want to, you know, only have the spiritual reality and not do the physical discipline. I mean, Christ said of, you know, tithing and stuff like that, well, do the latter, but don't neglect the former. They go together like peas and carrots. Okay, but you want the whole package. The priest kings assisting Christ in the future. Well, they will teach these same spiritual lessons. And there will be physical disciplines that go along with them, I put it to you. But they will teach the same spiritual lessons with the goal of moving people from the obvious physical observance to the spiritual realities that they point towards. You are learning the subject material now. That's what you are doing so that you can better teach others, so that you are convicted, convinced, and good at it. <laughs> the priests of old were also charged along similar lines with the proclamation, and I put it to you, the enforcement of what constituted acceptable worship practice, okay? And now that's a big subject, huge, all right? Let's just consider the Sabbath and the holy days, which, you know, I got a fine introduction on this whole thing from the first message, although you stole my scripture. Turn to Leviticus 23, verse 2. <laughs> Leviticus 23, verse 2, it says, as we just read earlier, speak to the Israelites and say to them. These are instructions that are being given to the priests, the Levites. These are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. These are physical observances that point toward and keep us focused. As you know, I know, as you, know, you learn more every year, they keep us focused on high-level spiritual realities. That's the point. That's what they're doing, accomplishing. Uh, let's take the weekly Sabbath. The weekly Sabbath. Well, it points folks towards the spiritual rest that God promises. It acknowledges God as creator. Those are just two of, you know, you could spend, and we have, hours talking about all the things that the Sabbath points towards, but those are the two that just pop right out of the actual commandments themselves from Exodus and Deuteronomy. What about the annual Sabbaths or holy days, the feasts? Well, these outline God's plan to move finite, physical, created beings through a process of salvation, sanctification, and resurrection to the point where they are fully formed, eternal, spiritual creatures, creation. That's God's plan. Flesh and blood people in the 1,000-year rule will need instruction. They will need instruction about God's purpose and plan for them. I mean, you know, the, the scriptures we, we like to focus on that, you know, the knowledge of the God, knowledge of God will be, you know, like, like the waters of the ocean. You'll be up to your neck in, in the word of God and how could you miss it? But people will need instruction in the underlying spiritual realities of what all these things mean. 
the priesthood in the age to come will proclaim and enforce these days. And you enforce it so that people don't get off track and just start wandering off with their own imagination about how things really work and what's really the future and the plan. Don't, don't turn there, because we, we do it often enough, and I'm pretty sure you'll turn to it during the feast. But Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 19. What is it saying? Okay, well, there are these people. They don't want to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Read it later, okay? They don't want to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, what's going to happen? Well, they're going to be punished. <laughs> so that they do. To keep them on track. Right? Not for the sheer joy of smiting them with a rod of iron, but to keep them on track. There's no other way. This is the way. Walk therefore in it. This is going to be part of the active duty of priests to proclaim, and I say enforce, these things. The removal of Satan. We'll get to that when we come to the, the, the Day of Atonement, okay? But uh, the, day, the removal of Satan from the scene, it's something we look forward to, and it's, you know, good. It's good. It's positive. But it does not put an end to all forms of resistance or questioning or doubt. I mean, you've got these people that don't want to keep the feast, right? You've got all those people that rebel at the end of a thousand years after all this good stuff's been rolled out in front of them. They still rebel. So it's not all unicorns and rainbows. Think about your own children, for example. If you've raised kids, especially if you've raised them in the, in the church, compliance and going through the motions does not mean they buy into it. It does not mean that they understand that they don't get the spiritual reality behind the observance. It's a good start, but it doesn't, it's not, not where you, you end, it don't end there. People in that time will need to be persuaded. Forcing someone to obey is not the same thing as winning their heart. Who better to win their heart than someone who has walked the walk and talked the talk and buys in with their whole heart. Your personal conviction regarding things like the Sabbath, the holy days, God's plan for salvation will be very important in your future role as a priest and king. What about managing of offerings and sacrifices? This is probably the one area of a priest that you know people think about First and foremost, sacrifices and stuff like that. And it can be a little on the complicated side. Turn to Leviticus 1. There's so much information in Leviticus, I have to kind of <clears throat> resist the temptation to go through it in detail. Um, I find it fascinating and not everybody wants to go through it on that level. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to you know, hit some generalities and some high points here. Uh, Leviticus 1, verse 2 through 9. Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from the, either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance of the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put, put on sorry, to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn it all on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Under the Old Covenant, Levitical priesthood, a person needed to sacrifice the life of an animal to atone for sin. 
also to have fellowship with God, also to cover offenses committed in ignorance. And those are some of the broad categories of, of offering that you, you find in Leviticus. The average person, the average man, would bring his sacrifice to the entrance of the tent, of the tabernacle. And if you've ever seen a recreation of the tabernacle, well, it's you know, all walled around and there's an entrance, a little entrance there. <clears throat> and they would bring their sacrifice to the entrance of the tent, confess sin over it. The man would you know, put your hand on the head of the animal, confess your sin over it, kill it, gut it, skin it. But he did not take it into the tabernacle. At that point, the priest took over and brought the animal flesh into the tabernacle compound and burned it on the altar and dealt with the ashes or the cooked meat, depending on what kind of sacrifice it was. The worshiper did not go in there. They did not go in the tabernacle. A priest is an intermediary, um, a mediator, if you will, a go-between, ensuring that the worshiper, in the case of the Levitical priesthood, ensuring that the worshiper did not bring any uncleanness or anything unholy into the area of the tabernacle, which was God's abode. To draw near to the presence of God with uncleanness was a dangerous thing to do. He didn't want to do that. And God didn't want people to do it and you know, suffer the consequences. So there was a priesthood that kind of acts as a buffer, if you will. Priests had to maintain a high level of personal holiness and cleanness so that they could safely draw close to the presence of God. Otherwise, they too would suffer consequences. In the New Covenant, there is no sacrifice of animals. You know that, I know that, we I I think we've gone through that thoroughly here. It's been a while, but we have. However, and, and we know that the sacrifice of Christ is once for all, okay? However, when things move from the old covenant to the new covenant, it's not that they are erased as much as it is that they're transformed. The priesthood is not done away, it's transformed. There remains sacrifice in the new covenant. 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 9. As you come to him, to Christ, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen precious cornerstone. The one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. That's a little aside he's putting in there to explain how the Levitical priesthood and the whole... Jewish religious system failed to recognize and acknowledge Christ. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the present age, once you have laid claim to the power of Christ's blood, and you have to claim it, you have to ask for it and lay claim to it, and there's a process that we go through for that. But once you have laid claim to the power of Christ's blood to atone for sin and to cleanse your conscience, it is possible for you to come personally before the throne of God. Right? We, we go through this at other times of the year, Passover, atonement as well. And when you do, when you come before the throne of God, you bring sacrifices with you, offering of gifts and sacrifices with you that are acceptable to God. 
Hebrews 9, verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Hebrews 10, verse 14. 14 through 25. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since you have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full insurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promises is faithful. So sacrifice. Go to Romans 12. Romans 12 gets our feet back on the ground, if you will. Verses 1 through 2, saying to the church, in this regard, I believe, Therefore, I urge you, O church, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Well, that, that answers a few questions, doesn't it? <laughs> You offer yourself, your whole body. I mean, like the burnt offering, the whole animal offered. What God's really looking for is you. You offer yourself in acts of service, according to the gifts that God has given within the body. And Paul goes on to talk about that, verse 3 through 9. Talk about acts of service according to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Things such as, um, we have different gifts, let's see. Prophesying. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If serving, then serve. If teaching, then teach. If, in, if it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. These things, these acts of service, create in you and demonstrate the creation of that new mind, that newness of mind. Okay? And Paul goes on to discuss the newness of mind in uh, the rest of that chapter, verse 9 through, through 21. We're going to come back to that. Let's first talk about, and this is to kind of keep the structure here, what about sacrifice in the age to come? What about sacrifice in the age to come? Prophetic scriptures indicate some form of sacrifice during Christ's future earthly reign. You'll read it in Isaiah. You'll read it in Jeremiah, you'll read it in Ezekiel, lots in Ezekiel, and Zechariah. They all mention this subject of sacrifice in the age to come. Post-Christ, but there's something going on there. Well, let's take a moment to think about this a little, okay? The age to come will be filled with the knowledge of God. Yeah, like I mentioned earlier, it's going to be up to your neck in the knowledge of God and with ready access to the Spirit of God. But that does not mean there will be no transgression. It doesn't mean people aren't ever going to fall short or stumble. Okay? It doesn't mean there's going to be no rebellion or doubt. Okay? As a priest in this set of circumstances, you are likely to be serving what I'm going to call a mixed group of people. Like any given congregation, a mixed group of people. Okay? with varying degrees of spiritual development and at different stages on the path to salvation. There are children, there are old people, there are people in between, there are people who haven't committed, there are people who have committed, 
And they're all there, and they'll be there in the age to come, will they not? People will still have free will. They will still have to choose, even in the thousand-year rule, I put before you life and death, choose life is still going to be the option. You will still have, people will still have to choose. Um, and some will have decided, and you'll be dealing with people who have decided, and some won't. Okay. Sin that does not come under the blood of Christ will have to be addressed somehow. Because God is present there through Jesus Christ. So it's kind of like the, the, the temple, if you will, or the tabernacle, where the presence of God is offended by uncleanness and sin, and it needs to be dealt with. Now, this, there's, don't want to speculate too much, okay? But could the age to come have sacrifice along the lines of Leviticus to address the sins of those who are not yet in Christ, who have not yet had their sins covered by his perfect blood and his perfect sacrifice? Or are we simply addressing the spiritual sacrifice along the lines of Second Peter or Romans 12? the spiritual sacrifices of those who have come under the blood of Christ. We don't know. We just don't know. But either way, either way, sacrifice remains in the age to come. Sacrifice remains as a means of maintaining a right relationship with God, as it is now, as it did then, as it will then. And you as a priest serving with Christ will help him on behalf of the people bringing sacrifice before God, that it will be acceptable. Because that's what priests do. Let's talk about characteristics and qualities that will make you a more effective priest. We'll go to Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 3. Every high priest is selected from among the people. This is talking about the priests of old, the Leviticals. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and who are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. And this is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as the sins of the people. In Israel, the priest served as a representative of the people, in matters pertaining to God, offering gifts and sacrifices for sin. And ideally, ideally, and I say ideally because it never really happened, he was to be able to deal with them gently, with understanding. He could deal with people who didn't know any better or who were going astray because he too was fallible and mortal. All right, back up to Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who was ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest, and this is speaking of what's happening here, now the resurrected Jesus Christ, active and alive as your high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus is an eternal being, but he is able to empathize because he has experienced life in the flesh, although without fault or sin. This same principle applies to the priests of the age to come those who are to follow along and serve with Christ. You will be better able to help people struggling with all their various problems because you are able to empathize with them. You will be able to empathize because you have gone through the same experiences. I put it to you that more than empathy is needed. More than empathy is needed. It's one thing to sit beside someone, put your hand on their hand and say, I feel you, man. You will also need other aspects of mind, the mind of God, 
to encourage them and lead them to the higher ground. Because it's not just about making people feel better. It's about leading them toward the higher ground, which is eternal life in the family of God. Well, let's go back to Romans 12. I said we would. Let's go back now. Following Paul's exhortation that we make spiritual sacrifice and that we submit ourselves to this process of renewal of the mind, transforming of our mind, he talks about some of the qualities of that renewed mind. Let's take a look at verses at verse 9 through 21. He says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Do not be will- sorry. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, revenge is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Overcome evil with good. These are the qualities of mind and character that will make you a more effective priest. Let me go over them and put them in my own words, if you you don't mind. Joyful. Joyful. Empathy will get your foot in the door. But the goal is to move people to the higher ground. You will need to stay focused on the positive outcome that lays in store for whoever it is you're, you're working with and dealing with. You need to be energetic and diligent, showing them that the goal is worth making the extra effort. We talk about how, you know, life after death is not just, you know, wafting on a cloud and playing a harp. Yeah, you need to be energetic and diligent. These are qualities of mind. Humility. Humility brought up here. Even in a millennial setting, Even in a millennial setting, the people who you are trying to help will respond better if you are not exalting yourself. That's what God says about his approach, (laughs) doesn't he? Sometimes it's hard to connect the dots on that, but that's what he said. That's how I think. Having respect for the people that you work with as thinking, creative minds with an amazing potential in God's family. That's going to go a long way. Your personal submission, your personal humility and submission to the authority of God, the authority of Christ. I mean, even though you are also in a glorified state, you know, uh, you, you know you're sitting at the, the right hand of the throne, you are subject to authority. Even though you have indestructible life, you are subject to authority. And in this way, you help to show them the goodness of God's way of peace. Affection. Affection. You will be a more effective priest if you are easy to get along with. If people see you have a genuine care and affection for them. And concern for them as individuals. See that you want to share this life with them. Like hospitality. That's one of the things we learn from hospitality. The family of God is not cold rational it has rationality but it is not without emotion the family of god rather is filled with love and generosity towards one another as a priest as an intercessor as a teacher you will guide people in that direction obedience we touched on or or, uh, paul touched on obedience in there 
Know the law. Do the law. Be the law. Godly living and true worship will have to be maintained and enforced. You will have to be firm and committed and convinced yourself, fulfilling the commandments in love. And that means fulfilling the commandments and making judgments and whatever you do that are just and fair towards all, that all see these things as fair and just. Last one, one on, the, on a really good one, mercy. Mercy. <clears throat> People in the millennium will stumble. They'll make mistakes. They'll sin. And they will need to be set back on their feet. Sometimes we read through the scriptures and, and we read of you know, Christ returning and with a rod of iron <laughs> and he's going to you know, whack people on the head who don't comply. That's all true. But it does not mean that, that God stops being merciful and forgiving. It just changes the way things are applied and implemented. But God is merciful and God is forgiving. His goal is to get people back on their feet. As it says here, we must not be vengeful or wrathful, acting rashly. We learn these lessons in our life today. Imagine with all the power and all the glory that Christ wants to entrust you with. Wow. You're going to have to be forgiving and gentle. You're going to have to have that mind, that renewal of mind, so that you are forgiving and gentle. This is the mind of a priest king. The mind that needs to be in you and should be and probably is being developed in you so that you can be an effective helpmate to Christ in the time of his earthly rule as king of kings and high priest of the universe. You are training now to act as a king and priest alongside Christ. And your trials and your suffering, your temptations, your overcoming, your works of service according to the gifts that God has given, all have meaning and purpose. Big meaning, big purpose. To the, as, the, as the word says, to the one who is faithful in these few small things, and we're not going through all these attributes of mind in depth, we'll go through them during the rest of the year. But to him who is, or her, who is faithful in these small things, God will grant authority over many things, over big things. So come and share in our Lord and Master's happiness. <laughs>